0: I just wanted to take a second before we get started today to remind you that there is a listener survey open right now. If it is the month of December 2020, it is open for you to provide feedback for me. So if you hit pause for a second and you want to take the survey, I would really appreciate if you did. You can find that either in the show notes if you're listening on an app. You should just be able to click on the episode and it should be right at the top and you it'll take you to the Google Form. It's also on the Facebook page. It's pinned to the top of the Facebook page. It is in the Instagram bio for the show, and I also recently tweeted about it. So please hit pause, give me some feedback, just take a couple minutes to do that, and I would greatly appreciate it. And with that, let's get things started. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. I'm your host, Julia Cubans, and today I'm joined by Megan Ward, who is a graduate student at Laurentian University. Megan, thank you for joining me today to talk about your research on amphibians.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is actually my first podcast, so I'm very, very excited. Yay, well, I am happy to have you here.
0: Uh, So first of all, Megan, what is an
1: amphibian? So that's a good question. Uh, I think generally an amphibian can be defined as being cold-blooded, so it's ectothermic, which means that unlike humans, amphibians can't regulate their own body temperature. So if they're really hot, they need to find a cold place to go to, and if they're really cold, they need to go and bask. Sometimes that's why we see... Uh, frogs or salamanders sort of soaking up some sun uh, because that's what they need to do. Generally, they are vertebrates, um, so they have a backbone. And they're also characterized by having an aquatic stage as larvae, and so they're gill breathing. And then as they're adults, they leave the aquatic pond and they live um, in the terrestrial environment, so they no longer have gills.
0: Okay, wow. So it sounds like there's a lot of things that characterize an amphibian.
1: But how did you first get interested in these creatures. So I, I don't think I took the normal way that most ecologists get into ecology. When I started, I actually started in ancient history and anthropology. So I was studying classic history. Oh, wow. I took a left turn, uh, did a total 180 in my second year of university. After just taking an introductory biology class, I uh, realized I totally loved it. And from there, I was set on doing biology as my major. And then it wasn't until my third year when I contacted my supervisor who studies amphibians on Pelee Island which is where um, when I talk about the research I did, that's where I'll be pulling that from. So I got in contact with him and he sort of showed me the ropes of the herpetology world and herpetology for anyone who doesn't know is amphibians and reptiles. So he introduced me to that. And I've sort of had my claws in that ever since, and I don't think I'll let go anytime soon. That's awesome, finding
0: something totally different, but finding that you love it. This work that we'll be talking about centers specifically on amphibian conservation. So what does it mean to conserve a
1: species? The way I approach conservation and the way most people do is sort of from two different categories. You can have in-situ conservation or ex-situ conservation. So in-situ uh, is just a fancy word for trying to conserve a species in in their natural habitat uh, so if they live in the forest naturally trying to conserve them while they're in the forest And then you have ex-situ conservation, uh, which refers to when you take a population out of its native habitat and you take care of it in captivity. So there's quite a few species where the habitat they require just doesn't exist anymore because of a bunch of different reasons, usually human development. And so that's not what I did. I did uh, in-situ conservation, so dealing with a population in its native habitat.
0: Okay, so what habitats would you typically find amphibians
1: in where you're doing this conservation? So all of them. That's why amphibians are so cool. You can literally (laughs) find them anywhere. (laughs) Um, So for me specifically, I was looking at salamanders on Pelee Island. So there were three species, uh, the smallmouth salamander, the blue-spotted salamander, and then this unisexual salamander that's super funky. And I won't spend a ton of time talking about it because that could be in and of a podcast of itself. But those are the three species I studied. And as adults, they live in forests uh, and they live on the ground, um, usually below uh, leaf litter or fallen logs. And then as larvae, which was the focus of my study, they're in breeding ponds. So we call them vernal pools, which just means they're not pools that hold water all year round. They just have water usually from like the spring until the fall, and then in the fall they dry up. So those are sort of the habitats that I studied uh, for this project.
0: Okay, so you mentioned that you're working with just a couple salamander species in particular. Mm -hmm. Why these species?
1: So the system itself, called a unisexual uh, system, is really, really interesting and very complex. And so when I joined the lab that I worked on this project with, they already had graduate students going to this location and doing fieldwork. And one of their outstanding questions was uh, their habitat So they're found on Pelee Island, which is Canada's most southern island, and it's surrounded by Lake Erie. And in the 1880s or so, a ton of the wetland on the island was redistributed and turned into agricultural fields. So we lost a ton of the habitat that was on that island, and now within like recent years, past 10 or 20 years or so, We've had different stakeholders come in and try to recreate ponds on the island for these salamanders to breed, otherwise their population goes down. And so we wanted to be able to study whether or not those ponds were actually making a difference, and if not, what could we do to make them better? So it was just sort of the perfect setup for the question we had at hand and a system that was already being studied, so it lent really nicely into this project.
0: Okay, so this is a pretty big area of land then. It's not just like a little island
1: just full of salamanders. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wish. That would be so cool. Um, It's not tiny, but it's definitely not huge. Uh, You can drive from one end to the other about half hour or so, and it is big enough to house a couple, like, a good number of cottages, some people who live year-round. If you need to, um, like, do big grocery shopping, like a large shop, you have to go to the mainland for that kind of stuff.
0: Okay, and so I think this might be a good transition to asking, what is the overall objective of the research that you're doing? You've kind of alluded to it already, but just, you know, in a
1: succinct manner, how would you wrap that all up? Yeah, I guess the overall objective that we're trying to look at is, are these constructed ponds that are on the island do they have the same function as natural ponds? And if they do, that's good. And if they don't, how can we change some abiotic or biotic features, environmental features, really? So whether that's uh, canopy cover or soil moisture or the presence of roads nearby, all those different factors play in. And so we're trying to see if we need to alter or change any of those different factors to create suitable habitat for these salamanders.
0: How do you start this process of just finding a piece of land that's suitable for this type of Of conservation.
1: So that actually is a project in and of itself Um, and a student at Trent University, Graham Smith, is currently working on that. So he's doing a lot of work with GIS technology and other land-based technology to look at the different environmental variables of different habitats. So whether that is it's close to a pond, it's close to uh, a specific type of forest, it has foraging areas, it has dispersal routes, it's not impacted by roads. He's looking at all these different variables and trying to find pockets of land that are suitable for different amphibian survival. So um, it takes quite a lot of work and you also have to be able to understand the ecology of the amphibian itself. You have to know uh, the type of habitat that it thrives in and the type of habitat that is really detrimental to its success. Combine all those different factors into like a GIS type analysis and then it usually puts out um, habitat types that is beneficial. So you do all that work on the on the computer, you then go to the site and see if it's actually correct. And then if you're like a conservation organization, you may be able to buy that land if it's available um, and then start a conservation process that way. How do you go about creating a pond? Well, uh, it can be very complex. So on Peely, there's ponds that are a couple meters by a couple meters. And then there's like really large wetlands that are being created. It's a long term project. That does take like 15 to 20 years.
0: Oh my goodness. So, what are some of the ways that you can speed up that process?
1: Yeah, so that's something that we're actually looking at in this project as well. A few ways to speed it up are to look at the ecology of the species that you're targeting if you are targeting a species and see what it likes. So does a specific type of frog or salamander like having lots of trees around or do they like a really bare area? Do they like specific plants or do they like a pond that has a lot of submergent vegetation? And depending on your answers to those ecological-based questions, you can include those kind of factors when you're creating a pond. So... For example, if you know that these salamanders on the island, they like having high canopy cover, they like having lots of leaf litter in the pond, you can put those kind of things in place uh, to help that naturalization process move quicker. So it's not, you know, one or two decades, it's hopefully a couple of years. A really useful tool as well is to create a pond near an existing population of amphibians. One of the things that makes it really difficult to create habitat for amphibians is they have a life history characteristic called high sight fidelity, uh, which means that if a salamander or a frog is born in pond A um, and emerges from pond A, It's going to try really hard to return to Pond A as an adult and breed there. So if you're creating a new pond kilometers away from any existing population, it's going to take a while for those frogs even just to disperse to your pond, Uh, never mind actually colonize it with new eggs. So... One of the tips and tricks we've learned is that you need to be able to build your pond within dispersal distance of a pre-existing population. Otherwise, you run the risk of having an awesome pond and no species actually being able to get there.
0: Okay, so let's say you have identified this piece of land, you've dug your hole, there is the naturalized process or, you know, the human interference process of creating this habitat, how do you then assess that the wetland that you're using is actually doing its
1: job? That is a great question and something that we have struggled with for a very long time <laughs> uh, because there can be a bunch of different answers. It really depends on the goal of the project. So. If you're, so for us, for example, we're looking at salamanders. So for us, we think a wetland is quote unquote successful if it's able to support an ongoing salamander population, if the salamanders can breed there, and if a, a subset of those salamander eggs can then emerge as juveniles and survive into adulthood, that's all really good for us. However, it really depends on the species you're targeting or the general goal of the wetland. Lots of people create wetlands for different reasons, whether it's frogs, amphibians, turtles, fish, as well as just like outreach for fishing and hiking, etc. However, people also just create wetlands because wetlands are extremely important environmental pieces um, and they have a lot of ecosystem services that uh, people use, whether or not we actually realize it. So being able to assess a wetland... Uh, whether and whether or not it's quote unquote successful does depend on the goal and it can vary quite a lot.
0: So you're creating these conservation sites. Are these areas where the salamanders that you work with normally live, or are you introducing them into the area?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, In my project, the salamanders already exist in a lot of the areas that we're trying to create ponds, um, or they're areas that we think the salamanders could thrive in if the ponds existed. So we're not doing a translocation project at all, so we're not taking animals from their native environment and introducing them into a foreign environment. Most of of the ponds that we studied in this project exist in areas, A, where salamanders already are, or B, where salamanders are close enough to that they could easily colonize and it's not a huge distance away from an original pond
0: so after you've kind of determined this area where you want them to colonize how long would you wait to determine if the wetland is successful or is it more of a population threshold like what where's the cutoff to saying yes this worked or no this didn't work
1: Mm -hmm. that's a good question too so one of the things about amphibians that's kind of difficult. I mean, there are a lot of things about amphibians that are difficult when you're <laughs> doing fieldwork. Um, but a lot of amphibian populations and salamanders specifically, and specifically in that ambistema salamanders, which is the Uh, genus that we're looking at here they can take up to three years for the females to mature and in addition females don't necessarily breed every year so even if they are adults and they're thriving we may not even see an egg population in the pools every single year so it could be that individual females take three years off of breeding and so if that's the case sometimes it's quite difficult you could have this like gap in like three years and think maybe your population has died off or have been predated, and in reality, they're fine, they're chilling, they just want to annoy your data set. So uh, it can be a little difficult. I think usually the sort of timeline for that is anywhere between five to seven years. We're really lucky on the island that we actually have people who live there that we've talked to and explained the projects we're doing and um, will look at ponds for us, but they, they're they not able to get to all the ponds and not all projects have that. So yeah, it can be quite difficult, but I'm hoping that the more people learn about amphibian conservation and, you know, frogs and salamanders, toads and newts in general, the more willing they are to support scholarship money and funding money and do some science science to support this kind of research.
0: Yeah, that's so awesome that you get to incorporate some of the people that actually live there that must, I don't know, be, be nice to integrate into the community, the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, we're often referred to as the salamander people. Uh, because Peely is <laughs> relatively small, so a lot of the uh, a lot of the people who like live there full time know about us because we come before the cottage in season really started uh, really opens up. So we're like the newcomers on the island, and uh, yes, they always know who we are because we jump out of our car and run into bogs and wetlands together. So I think they think we're a little crazy, but they like hearing about the salamanders. <laughs>
0: Hi, everyone. It's Julia. We're just going to take a quick break from all of the cool information we're learning about salamander habitats. I didn't know anything about salamanders before this, so this was pretty fun for me. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, there is a listener survey up. So if it is December 2020, I would encourage you to please fill that out for me. So as I said at the beginning of the episode, you can find that in the show notes. If you're listening on your phone on an app, you should be able to click on the episode and that link is right at the top of the show notes. It should take you to a Google form. You can answer as many or as few questions as you'd like, but I'm just trying to get an idea of the episodes people have liked, what has stood out about them, what you want to hear about in the future, if there are any ideas for how I can get more interaction with you as the audience to be in the episodes, because I am really looking forward to that. And so, as I mentioned, you can find the survey on the episode itself where you're listening. You can find it on Facebook. It's pinned to the top of the Facebook page, and that Facebook page can be found if you type in at Hooked on Science Pod. It's also in the Instagram bio, if that is your preferred method to keep up with the show, and that is also at Hooked on Science Pod. And then it's on the Twitter page, which is at Hooked on Science. And... That kind of brings me to my next thing, which is I've looked over some of the early responses and there's some really great information and responses there. So, I thank everyone who has already responded, but I'm still looking for more feedback, as much feedback as I can get, honestly. But one of the one of the suggestions was to have listeners submit questions for upcoming speakers and guests. So, this is something that I have considered, but I guess I just haven't had the motivation to put together a form to do that. But here we are. I put it together and I look forward to seeing what you want to hear from the speakers. So once I have speakers lined up, I will add them to this form. And you can primarily find this form on the website. I think that'll be the easiest way to keep it accessible. And so the website is sites dot slash view slash hooked on science. It's kind of long, but also if you Google hooked on science podcast, I think it will come up somewhere in the search page. Um, but once you go to the website, this form will be right on the front page of the website and you'll click on the form. There'll be a drop down menu where you can pick which speaker slash topic you want to write a question for. There's a box where you can write that question. And then there'll also be a link to a Google Doc that you can look at that'll have a short description of what the speaker is going to be talking about. I keep saying speaker. What the guest is going to be talking about. And so I hope that this gives everyone an opportunity to ask questions about things that they're interested in. So I only have one guest up there right now. It will be our December 30th episode, the last one to close out the year, and we're going to be talking about tornado climatology, which is... I'm really interested to hear about it. We haven't recorded it yet, obviously, but I am really looking forward to learning more about this topic, and if that's something that you have a question about, you can find that listener question submission form, again, on the website. That is sites.google.com slash view slash hooked on science, and I'll probably make a Facebook post about this sometime later in the week or next week so that you can get those questions in before uh, Alyssa and I sit down and have our conversation. And if you are feeling really brave, there is another way that you can submit those questions. So, as I mentioned in the last episode, There is a voice memo function on my host site, which is, uh, I'll put a link to that also in that question submission form. So, if you want to leave a voice memo, you want to ask the question yourself, you can do that as well. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what you all have to say. Oh, and before I forget, (laughs) this is more pertinent to last week's episode than this week's episode, but... I try to give a shout out to the people who suggest guests for me and I forgot to do that last week. So last week's episode or two weeks weeks ago episode on Deep Winter Greenhouses, Connie suggested Dan, Greg, and Carol to me, so I would like to thank her for sending that along to me because I had a lot of fun recording with them. We got a really well-rounded and interesting take on what they're doing because they're all working on different parts of that project. And with that, I think that is all the announcements I have for today. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Go take that survey, submit any questions you have for the next couple episodes, and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Let's get back to those salamanders. Just to put this in perspective for you as a graduate student working on a project, our tenure doesn't last, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years, the span that it sounds like it would take to go from, you know, pond creation to breeding. So what does your role in all of this look like?
1: So... Originally, I did the project as an undergraduate thesis and then continued editing that paper into my master's and then had it published um, in my master's. So for me, I was able to hold on to the project for about a year and a half. However, in the long run, that's a very short amount of time. We are lucky, though, that we partnered with the Nature Conservancy of Canada, among others, to do this research. And they and and I think working with NGOs, so non-government organizations, on projects like this let you have um, or let you get a taste of that long-term idea as well with uh, with these kind of projects because even if researchers can't necessarily stay there like you know master's is only two years these NGOs may be able to have a bit more of a longevity and connection uh, with these actual projects.
0: So when you went out and you looked at these wetlands What type of measurements were you taking? Were you mostly looking at the ecological characteristics? Were you looking at the species that were present? Were you kind of marrying both of
1: those topics? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, All of the above. Uh, We took note (laughs) of all the species that we found. Um, So we found a lot of other amphibians. So we were looking specifically at salamanders, but we found some newts and we found some frogs. We often found some reptiles. There's some turtles and snakes that live on the island as well. Um, So we just noted those down. They didn't end up actually being part of the project, but they were always cool to see. And it's interesting to note what different sets of species make up different communities. That's that was always really interesting. So we took note of that. Some of the key uh, variables that we used in our study were canopy cover. So that means the amount of shade created by trees that are beside the pond, uh, leaf litter, submergent vegetation. So if there's any water-based plants in the pond, as well as just general detritus. So things that make up like the base of the pond, whether that's leaves or fallen logs or sticks, etc. cetera. Um, another kind of cool factor we did look at that actually had a significant impact on our research uh, was the the presence of crayfish burrows so there's a species of crayfish that lives on the island they're called casually they're called the the chimney crayfish and they dig these burrows through the mud in the ponds and at first we weren't sure if it was you know maybe just that the crayfish like the same habitat as the salamander but we actually found lots of salamanders hiding in these crayfish burrows as like a refugia like a safe place so those are sort of the a few key uh, environmental factors that we took into consideration we also measured We measured things like salt, um, so salinity levels, uh, pH, temperature, and a few of those classic uh, abiotic measurements.
0: So Megan, you go out in this wetland, you have your sampling supplies, and you're looking for these salamanders. How do you go about, you know, characterizing how many salamanders are there, what other amphibians are around?
1: That's an awesome question and arguably one of the best parts about being a salamander biologist. You get to put on a pair of waders. If you don't know what waders are, they're sort of like overalls that are closed-toed, not supposed to have holes, but they almost always do have holes. (laughs) And then you go in the water, usually get soaking wet, uh, and you have a big net with you. And you just do really big sweeps, and you do a specific number of sweeps depending on the size of the pond that you're in, um, and then you're able to catch the larvae that way. And that allows us to analyze catch-per-unit effort. So for us, it was uh, 40 sweeps per pond, and then you see how many uh, salamander larvae you caught, and then you can sort of do some statistical stuff and figure out how many. You can estimate the population of the salamanders based off our results, and that's how we find larvae. Often, you can find larvae if you're in a forest, and there are some vernal pools Around, you can check them out, and there may be some larvae floating around depending on the season. One of the best things to do, though, is try to find adult salamanders because they are ubiquitous across uh, North America. And the best way to do that is to just flip over logs and try and see if you find a salamander or a newt. You may, depending on the environment you're in. And it's really cool because, in most cases, they can't run really fast, so you can often get really nice pictures of the salamander in its native habitat. And they're incredibly cute and always look like they're smiling, so I would urge you to flip over. Some logs and/or go sweeping through a pond.
0: So, after you have done these assessments of your wetlands, looked at the ecological, the species that are living there, have you found that there are any risks or negative impacts that you might create an artificially high population of a species in an area or that you might, you know make it uninhabitable for another species that was already living there?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. And it's an issue that I think conservation biologists really need to be aware of. I know there's been horror stories of like, for example, in Europe, the introduction of the gray squirrel has now completely overpopulated the native red squirrel and they're having issues with that. So that's definitely something that conservation biologists need to be aware of. And so in our study, personally, I don't think there's a huge risk of creating an artificially large population. A, because the salamanders Already live on the island, and so they already have sort of settled out and equalized where populations are going to be, and and they've looked at that carrying. They haven't looked at it. They've they've figured out their carrying capacity, and and that's sort of how the population has equalized. However, um salamanders and amphibians in general also have quite low. One of the well, one of the reasons why their populations don't necessarily have huge booms is because even if 300 eggs are laid uh, in a breeding season um, per female, you may only have four or five adults surviving from that population. So their survival rate, yeah, from larval stage to adult is really, really low. And so that actually makes it quite difficult to have huge booms in the population just because of their life history. So for us, it's not a huge issue. As well, there are predators on the island for the salamander, so there are snakes on the island. Uh, also turkeys wild turkeys on the island have been observed to predate on the salamanders so there's not without they're not living in a population that has no predation available to them um yeah so again the risk of having that kind of population boom isn't super viable on in this study site uh, but that's not to say it, it couldn't happen in a different study site
0: okay and is the main reason that these salamanders don't make it all the way to adulthood because of that predation or are there other factors that you know, go into that.
1: Yeah, so there's a ton of factors. Predation is definitely one of them. Um, so as adults, they're predated on by like turkey and snakes. But interestingly enough, as larvae, they can often be predated on by insect larvae. Uh, so dragonfly larvae will eat tadpoles or or amphibian larvae when they're in their aquatic stage. They can overpower them. So that's something that uh, reduces their population. Amphibian disease is a, is a big thing that can kill um, the aquatic stage of amphibians. So Two main diseases, a bacterial disease, chytrid, and a viral disease, ranavirus, are absolutely decimating amphibian populations on a global scale. And they that infection starts in the tadpole stage. So that really, really reduces populations. As well, I talked about how these ponds dry up in the fall. They're called vernal ponds. So they, they don't hold water the whole year. If the Uh, larvae aren't able to develop in time to leave the pond before it dries up, they can actually desiccate to death.
0: That sounds horrible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's a good way to go, (laughs) Uh, but technically they drown because they have gills and there's no water left. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of, of issues that can keep that population low.
0: Wow, yeah, it sounds like there are a ton of things working against getting these salamander populations
1: up. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite sad. I remember doing field work and there was like a ton of larvae and just being like, um, oh, most of you are gonna die in the next like three or four weeks.
0: <laughs> is this project still ongoing or is it wrapped up at this point?
1: Yeah, so this project is wrapped up and it's been published now, so um it's in my old files.
0: <laughs> okay, so what were some of the results that you found in the part of the study that you took part in?
1: Mm-hmm. So, for us, we had sort of three main questions. We looked at what variables impact abundance of salamanders, um, and what impacts the presence of salamanders. And so that's different. By presence, you could have a pond that has maybe two or three salamanders, um, and abundance talks about you know do you have a pond with two or three salamanders, or do you have ponds that are able to support a hundred salamanders, and what are are the variables that differ between them so for the presence we saw that it was the sub- presence of submergent vegetation played a huge role in allowing uh, salamander larvae to survive in the pond as well as leaf litter so if there was lots of leaf litter in the pond or detritus in the pond we saw the presence of salamander larvae there However, abundance, or in our case, we measured it through catch-per-unit effort, um, that was impacted by the presence of crayfish burrows. So as the number of crayfish burrows increased, so did the number of salamander larvae. Uh, It was also impacted by canopy cover around the pond Pond margin. So that means there were trees around the pond, and we looked up and saw how much of the sky was shaded and how much wasn't. And so, as the canopy cover increased, as the amount of shade increased, uh, we saw the abundance of salamanders increase as well. And finally, similar to presence, we saw that leaf litter also impacted salamander larvae. So, as the leaf litter increased, so there was more detritus in the bottom of the pond, uh, we saw more abundance of larvae. And that sort of makes sense because you can use Salamanders can use leaf litter as a refugia, so as a way to hide from predators. And so if there's a lot of places to hide, you can support a larger number of uh, salamander larvae because they're able to hide from predators that way. We also looked at the environmental variables that characterized natural ponds, so ponds that weren't man-made, they were just there originally, and ponds that were man-made to see like, did they really differ and, and how do they differ? And we found that natural ponds had much higher canopy cover, Um, they often had more submergent vegetation present, they had cooler temperatures, they were often a little bit bigger. And so those were sort of some key factors that differed between constructed and natural ponds. And so that sort of showed us that the variables that are important to salamander survival are found in natural ponds and they're not found in constructed ponds. So that's not to say that constructed ponds are useless, but it is to say that right at the onset of construction, if you're not going to mediate their naturalization process in any way, they're not going to be suitable for these amphibian or for these salamander species.
0: Definitely. It sounds like there are some very tangible goals to reach for when making these unnatural ponds compared to the natural ones.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I mean, at least for me, that's why I love conservation so much because you can do research like this that has field work and has lab work and does some data analysis and actually create real applicable um, results that can actually be used for the conservation of species. And I really like being able to see that in the research that I do.
0: Yeah, this has been so interesting. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your work today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. That was awesome.
0: Are there a few takeaway points before we wrap up?
1: Yes. Uh, So generally, I want people to know that amphibians are awesome and reptiles are awesome. Um, And they're often not actually slimy, despite the fact that they look slimy. (laughs) So if you do find one, if you're on a hike and you flip over a log, I think it's definitely very exciting to find amphibians in the wild so take a look and learn as much as you can and who knows maybe you'll go from studying ancient art history to salamanders one day just like i did the second sort of takeaway relates more to the project that we talked about it is much much easier to just conserve the ponds that exist already than it is to destroy those ponds and try and create and try and replicate what those ponds had and the impact they had on the environment So I'm imploring anyone who can, if you see that your government or different institutions are looking to destroy habitat, stick your thumb out and make a difference and try and say that it is much easier to just conserve those populations and those habitats than it is to try and replicate them or replace them. Um, I think that'll have a huge impact going forward. And if as many of us as can or as possible try and make a difference, I think eventually we will. So I hope people do that.
0: Yeah, awesome. And I think that's very applicable to many of the things going on in the world today, not just in the conservation front.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: (laughs) So, Megan, if people want to learn more about this research, is there anywhere that they can go to get more information?
1: Yeah, so if you want to have more information on this specific project, you can uh, find me on Twitter. I'm at mag. If you're interested in the salamander complex that I talked about uh, specifically, though, you can go to www.thomashosey, so dot Ca. He was my supervisor for this project, and he's an awesome professor and absolutely loves talking about salamanders, and will talk to anyone he can about salamanders. (laughs) So if you are interested in learning more, definitely check out his website and get in contact, because I think you'll learn a ton.
0: Perfect. Well, Megan, thank you again for joining me today. It was really great to hear more about your salamander research.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.